Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. As always, this podcast is brought to you guys over at patreon.com slash here in apologetics. Uh, so if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash here in apologetics. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. Um, that'd be huge. Um, but today my guest is Dr. S. Joshua Swamadas. He's a physician, he's a scientist, and he's the founder of Peaceful Science. He's an associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, he works in computation biology and uses AI to explore like science at the intersection of biology, chemistry, and medicine. Um, so, Dr. Swamadas, Josh, welcome. How are you doing today? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you. Well, see, yeah. I met you before, but it's great to be back. <laughs> great to talk. It's been a minute. Um, today, we're going to be talking about an article um, that I found that you wrote in Peaceful Science about like the science of genetic bo- bottlenecks. Um, and I'm super excited to do this because at least me personally, like I don't have a science background. Um, I'm interested in science, but like, I'm not like training to be a scientist or anything like that. So anytime I see something like this, um, I love like just thinking about it and talking to someone like you, um, who has this knowledge to help people like kind of understand what's going on here. So anything you want to say before we start to like get rolling into this, Josh? Yeah. Um, I think the, that, there, I mean, I think there's really interesting stuff here on the genetics to look at and to explore about, but there's reasons why it's important for how people are thinking theologically about human origins. That's probably part of what drew you to it, right? Mm-hmm, definitely, because it's like when I look at it, I'm like, oh, like I, I've heard of this genetic bottleneck thing. Like, I mean, I've read your book and I also think about things that people have used to be like, hey, like we need like an Adam and Eve or, oh, this like disproves it, like use both ways. And like, it's something that's like been in the back of my mind. Um, and I feel like today's a chance to provide more clarity about what actually is going on here. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's, let's jump right in whenever you're ready then. And you know, I'll try to I'll try to explain it the best I can. Well, let's do it. Um, Josh also has the article pulled up on his screen. So if at any point you want me to pull it up, just let me know and I can do that. Um, but let's just look at like the question of like, first off, like what are genetic bottlenecks? Yeah. So first off, um, if you do put it up on the screen, uh, right there, you'll see that uh, this is an article that anyone can access at fuselscience.org. It was presented at um, a scientific meeting where I explained this, got feedback from a lot of other scientists. And um, as far as I know, there's really no uh, scientific issues that anyone's brought up with it. But you can find it at Peaceful Science. It's called the Misunderstood Science of Genetic Bottlenecks. Now, um, what is a bottleneck? And why might it be important, right? So that first image right there gives you a good mental picture of what a uh, a bottleneck is. If you kind of think about this gray box up here, uh, can you see my uh, pointer when I do that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that gray box right there, if you imagine that being in the in the, in the distant past, and you're kind of moving forward in time as you move down. Uh, down this image, um, and that's the population size. And let's say there's a big, large population that's very, very large, and then at some point, it drops down to a tiny amount of a small population. Now, how small? Well, in the context for the questions we're going to be looking at, we mean really, really small. We mean uh, just uh, two couples. I'm sorry, well, two individuals, a single couple, right? (laughs) So it's not two couples, it's just one couple. And from there, then the population will kind of grow from there back up to a, to a larger number. You follow me? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the population of ancestors and of some of some group. Uh, let's say all of humans. And does it ever dip down? And so in that image, you can see it dipping down to a single couple. So why would that be important? Well, that's how some people have thought about Adam and Eve. And uh, the idea has been, uh, the, the instinct has been, well, the evidence is really against this. So therefore that really disproves um, Adam and Eve as the sole ancestors of everyone or the, or, you know, basically that, that, that we know Adam and Eve are not ancestors of all of us because uh, we have strong evidence against there being a bottleneck like that. That's basically how um, it's been thought about for quite some time. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So we're thinking about this idea, like this misunderstood parts, the top here, um, where like, kind of like before, like you have this picture of like a single couple, which you can see like the little, like the top of like that little picture right there in the black. Um, and the question of like, well, like, did everyone come from like this, like this, this couple? Um, and that's kind of what we're thinking about right now. Yeah. So the idea, so if someone says, you know, I think that everyone descended from Adam and Eve, people thought 
that this is what they uh, that they're committed to. They're committed to a genetic bottleneck. That's the idea that mm. people have been had thought. And that you're wondering where that comes from. Um, that's how you know leading scientists engaging this issue, like Dennis Venema and um, and Biologos organization for quite some time until you know very recently had argued uh, that you know well what people mean by Adam and Eve they they were saying was a genetic bottleneck because they thought that everyone descended from Adam and Eve mm. right yeah and they meant and they mean this in a very very rigid way so if there's any interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others then that would rule out a genetic bottleneck and it would disprove what they were saying everyone else thought Adam and Eve was does that make sense yeah so the the interbreeding disprove because I think there's the question of like, you know, like if Adam and Eve are the only two humans, like, um, and they had kids, like how did everyone else come about? You're saying that like the idea of bottlenecks, like people thought that it would like disprove. Um, I'm sure I think I'm a little lost with what you meant there at the end. Well, so there's like these ideas about human origins that come from a theological point of view or reading, reading scripture. If you talk, I mean, if you look kind of in historical theology, if you talk to creationists, what do they mean by, um, by Adam and Eve? And uh, there's been a large group that said, well, what it means and what and who are Adam and Eve? They're the people from whom we all descend. And the idea was, well, if they're the people from whom we all descend, that means there must have been a genetic bottleneck for what you're saying to be true in the past, where you can mm. trace back the human population down to just two people. Okay. But you, I mean, yeah. you've read my book. You know there's problems with that idea, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, I'm tracking with you. That makes sense now. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two problems with it. The first is, one that you know about, is that Adam and Eve could still be ancestors of everyone if there was interbreeding between their lineage and others, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They'd still be ancestors of everyone. So that, that's the first miss, right? And when you take that into account, um, that, that really starts to question how important a genetic bottleneck is, because there's... Um, you know, even if you don't think there's a lot of interbreeding, or even if you don't want there to be interbreeding, um, if you talk to a lot of creationists, it turns out that um, if the evidence shows there had to be a little bit of interbreeding, they don't really have a problem with that. So they're not really committed to a genetic bottleneck in this sense. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So what you're saying is like, and this is going back to the genealogical Adam and Eve, like you can have an Adam and Eve who everyone that exists today are descendants of them, um, but not have Adam and Eve being like the only two human beings that like existed at the time of like, when they came about um well, it's trickier than that so um that what you said is true but it, it goes even farther than that so uh, let's take reasons to believe okay so there's some famous old earth creationists a lot of people know who Hugh Ross is right he thinks that uh that homo sapiens humans homo sapiens are are the same thing so if you're talking about the origin of humans you're talking about the origin of homo sapiens right mm-hmm and he thinks that the Homo sapiens began with two people, and that that their kids didn't interbreed with others, so they're kind of having incest. But then the cousins are kind of, you know, are you know marrying, intermarrying the cousins, and then it starts to grow into a larger, a larger group. But eventually, that you know, at times, rarely, uh, these humans would breed with non-human, uh, non-human Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't my view, and there can be certainly debate about how human Neanderthal is all, but we're talking about what about what this means for population genetics, right? Mm -hmm. So if we just go with them for a moment that Neanderthals are not human, um, they, they think that there's interbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. That means that, um, that they're not actually thinking that there's a genetic bottleneck down to a population of two, because it every point in, in in what they're proposing in their hypothesis there was always more than two ancestors in the past does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that makes sense now at the same token um well that's the case well they've been open to the idea of i mean they don't necessarily like it because they don't want to see humans interbreeding with um non-humans but they think the evidence really goes there right it's been very very common to then kind of make uh, this particular mistake in the logic to think that because they think that humans begin with a single couple, because that's still true, right? In their model, there isn't any other humans around <laughs> when mm -hmm. Adam and Eve exist, right? Yeah. Um, they're the only two Homo sapiens at that point, And then there's Homo sapiens after them that all descend from them and all Homo sapiens descend from Adam and Eve. 
that doesn't actually mean that there was a genetic bottleneck because they think Homo sapiens interbred with other beings, like um, other Neanderthals. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. So that's, I think, the core thing. That's uh, that's the first way that genetic bottlenecks are misunderstood. Is to uh, there's actually been probably a lot more a theological emphasis placed on bottlenecks than really needs to be because honestly. Um, I don't think very many creationists at all are strictly committed to an idea of, a, of Adam and Eve, everyone arising from them, and there being absolutely no interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others. Now, they might prefer if there to be no um, interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others, but they're not committed to it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you're saying that, like, for the creationist they may not need a bottleneck um, because they might believe like maybe there was interbreeding with like Neanderthals or something along those lines. Well, that would be for reasons to believe, right? Um, but we can look mm-hmm. at William Lane Craig. So William Lane Craig thinks Adam and Eve were more ancient than that. Um, he thinks that Neanderthals were equally human and also descendants of Adam and Eve, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks that they lived around 700,000 years ago and that they, that they were the first two Homo hybridensis that were made in the image of God with a fully human mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thinks that they kind of self-isolated and kind of the same sort of model, but it's entirely possible that some of their, at some point there's intermixing between Adam and Eve's lineage and the other two. I mean, he doesn't want there to be, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. see any evidence for it. Um, and there isn't any evidence for it that far back. Um, but if there was evidence that was uncovered, it wouldn't, destroys you you just say oh, i guess there was i don't i don't really like it but that's just what happened there's things that are that are kind of ugly that happen in the real world that's one of the other things that happened so he's not actually committed to a genetic bottleneck does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah i mean so you can you can go through this sort of discussion with with creationists and you find out that like i said i'm not i'm not i don't really know of any creationists that are ultimately committed to a genetic bottleneck of two. Uh, I mean, another way how this really gets challenged is the idea of, you know, um, maybe there was more than one um, genome in Adam and Eve, right? (laughs) Um, So maybe there's a different genome in each of Eve's eggs. So that's been an idea that's been really explored. So in that case, it would be a single couple, but it's not a couple of uh, complete genomes. It's really, you know, it's not not four complete genomes, uh, two for each of them. It's, it's a lot more, it's unbounded in that sense. So the idea that, there, that if there was evidence against a genetic bottleneck of a single couple of normal biology people, that wouldn't apply in this case to the models like that. Once again, that's an idea that's often considered within young earth creationist and old earth creationist literature too. Now, mm-hmm. this is a lot of thought experiments and some people might wonder why this even matters. So let's, let's pause about that. Like, I, here's the thing, I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm a scientist, I really care about valuable, valid science that's accurate. I don't share the theological views of William Lane Craig on this or of reasons to believe or of young earth creationists. I have no problem with, um, with um, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, interbre- just Adam and Eve's um, descendants interbreeding with everyone else and a genealogical Adam and Eve in the really recent past. I just don't see any problem with that. And I also see, don't, don't see any problem with evolution in an old earth. I, like I, I just affirm those things. And not everyone I mentioned does. But ultimately, as scientists, um, we really need to be honest with people about what the evidence shows. And so if we're going to say that there's evidence against their position, we really should have evidence for it. For, I mean, first of all, we should really be accurately characterizing them and making sure the models that we're using really match what they're saying. And then two, when we say we have evidence against that, then we really should have evidence against that that's solid that we can actually explain. Um, it's just a matter of basic fairness, of honesty, of transparency and being upfront. And unfortunately that hasn't always been the case. So that, that's why this is important. Um, because if, you know, if we overstate what the evidence says or doesn't say, or if we misrepresent the people we're trying to say that we have evidence against, uh, when it comes to something like this, they're not gonna trust us on other things when maybe they should. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm tracking with you. Like, yeah, it's important to like make sure that like we have a proper understanding and thinking about like the science rightly. And yeah, I think I'm on the same page as you, Josh. 
Yeah, so, so like I'd say, the very first way they're really misunderstood is by thinking that this model of origins actually maps really well to how creationists think about it. It turns out that, um, and now even, I would even go so far as to say the creationists, this is how it kind of played out. It's such a strong misunderstanding that a lot of them misrepresent or mischaracterize or misanalyze their own views in this. Mm -hmm. It's happened a lot in my conversations with with some of these groups, actually, where they would say that they're committed to a genetic bottleneck. They'd say, but I thought you said that you think there's interbreeding between Adams and Eve's lineage over here. Or there could have been. And you're like, yeah, but I'm still committed to genetic bottleneck. But those are mutually contradictory ideas in terms of mm, how that's okay. understood. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, that's very helpful, I think. And so... Um, so I think a good way to put it is that it's been misunderstood and, and really confused. Now, that's not necessarily the case right now. So if you go talk to, uh, you know, William Lane Craig, I mean, we had these conversations and sorted out. I mean, like, we realized, oh, you mean when they say genetic bottleneck, they're ruling out any sort of interbreeding at any point. And I'm like, well, yeah, that, that's what that means. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then he's like, oh, well, then I'm not committed to that. I said, I know you're not committed to that. So you're not committed to a genetic bottle. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so this was, this was like a surprising revelation for him um, because the way he was using the term was really different than how most scientists understand it. And um, so once again, like the very first way uh, this really is important is that people think a genetic uh, uh, bottleneck is important for understanding, um, you know, models of Adam and Eve, and that's just not actually the case. It turns out that this is not nearly as important as people thought. If you mm -hmm. go through the article here, you'll see several places where um, I point out where this comes out. This book right here is called Adam by the Adam and the Genome, was written by Dennis Venom and Scott McKnight. They define Adam and Eve essentially as a, a couple of which there's a genetic bottleneck. Um, and they present all this evidence against it. Now, none of that evidence, it turns out, was actually valid. That's a different issue. But the fact that that's the only way they thought about Adam and Eve in this book, um, you know, kind of highlights how, uh, how uh, you know, they were just talking past, um, you know, the people who really actually think Adam and Eve might be important theologically. Mm -hmm. And so why would, a, a, you know, Christians that are trying to represent science to the church so badly miss it well it comes down to that you know they had a theological goal here they were trying to argue against adam and eve so presenting evidence against or presenting evidence in science as if it's in conflict with that view even when it's really not um help them in that theological goal uh, it's completely understandable to see why they actually did that uh, and it was also really effective because it convinced most people that that was actually the case um, but at the same token in the end it just ends up not being really good science so what happened with this particular book, um, it came out in 2017, and, uh, and there was a scientist named Richard Bugs, who uh, is a scientist out in the United Kingdom, who, who kind of raised questions about the book, about whether or not what it was actually saying was good science or not. And there was something pretty remarkable that happened. I, I describe it here as a post-publication review of um, Adam and the Genome. Um, that there was a public discussion that took place between Dennis um, Dennis Venema, who's one of who's one of the authors, the scientific author of the book, Richard Bugs, uh, and also a few others and scientists, including Ann Gager from the Discovery Institute, and uh, myself, um, I'm Josh Swamidas, and. Uh, I'm not with the Discovery Institute. I'm, I'm, I'm aligned with mainstream science. I have no problem with evolution. But we were just looking at what was going on actually in, in, in the claims made by the book and whether or not there really was strong evidence against a genetic bottleneck. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if I'm just tracking with you, we, where you've been going, Josh, is we're looking at this book of Adam and the Genome. Um, and what they're trying to think about, if, I, if I'm tracking with you right, is that in the book, they're arguing that like, hey, like the science actually doesn't support like a genetic bottleneck. Um, but like you need that for Adam and Eve. So then we're going to argue against like a non-historical like Adam and Eve. Um, and what you what you and other people in this discussion are trying to look at is the question of like, was that actually the case? Yeah. So the first thing that really became clear is that that, first of all, an Adam and Eve doesn't require a genetic bottleneck. 
there's there's a lot to go in on, in on this with, but um, it was just really clear that it doesn't demonstrate that just because there is no genetic bottleneck doesn't mean that we don't all descend from Adam and Eve. It doesn't mean that Adam and Eve weren't real people in a real past. And it doesn't mean that uh, that uh, the Adam and Eve weren't ever the first two humans. It, it just, it, it has no relevance to those things. And so that, and, you know, Dennis actually conceded these things very quickly up front and then mm-hmm. kind of basically uh, presented a new, uh, kind of reframed everything, narrowed down everything he was saying to saying something very different than what his book says. Um, just saying, okay, that all he really meant was a genetic bottleneck, that he's ruled that out not going eight, back 18 million years, as he'd said in the past, but going back just, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand years. Okay. And so we start to see, well, actually, is it true that the genetic evidence actually rules that out? And um, this is an important uh, figure here, which kind of summarizes what we found out. So each row in that table there, so you can kind of see here and here, here, uh, let's see here. You can see the LD here, the ILS here, 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 and here, um, represents like a, a line of evidence that we consider. The book itself discusses two key lines of evidence that he thinks demonstrate that there was never any bottleneck. So this is like the hypothesis that we're testing right here. So the first is called linkage disequilibrium. That's where we get the LD from. It's a way of measuring um, effective population size in the past. There's other ways of measuring it, but really uh, most of them are very similar to linkage disequilibrium in the sense that they cover this time period right here from present day back to about 2 million years ago. You follow me? Mm-hmm. And then ILS, which is incomplete lineage sorting. Um, what it is, um, I'm happy to explain if you're curious. The paper explains in more detail. But the really key thing is that it only covers the time period from 6 million years ago and more ancient. And so <clears throat> really on the basis of these two lines of evidence, um, Dennis was saying that you know he's able to rule out a genetic bottleneck. Um, the key thing that we found out is that both neither of these two lines of evidence, either considered separately or together, actually do that. It turns out that that having a genetic bottleneck is not something that actually is picked up by these methods. That you can actually that they really don't tell you that there wasn't a genetic bottleneck. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what he was trying to do was is he was trying to show that like these two pieces of evidence um, showed that there was a genetic bottle, like a genetic bottleneck. And what was you're... not? He's saying that there was not, right? Sorry, that there was not. Um, and what you're trying to say is like you just you can't rule that out, um, based off of what we have. Yeah. So basically, um, he like repeatedly misrepresented the evidence, saying that effective population size was an estimate of the minimum population size possible. When it's really not. It's like um, it's the it's a measurement of the average population over a large period of time. Does that make sense? So effective population size is what he, so he thought it was like, it was like the estimate of like the minimum population. Is that right? Well, that's what he says. That's what he writes. I mean, what he Mm -hmm. thought is a different issue. I don't know if he really thought that, but that's what he wrote several times. Mm -hmm. And And what's actually the case? It's not the case, right? So um, if I told you um, there's a room of people where the average height is five foot, does that rule out there being a person that's four foot there? No, it doesn't. Okay. That's what the effective population size is. It's an average of a group of entities. Now, if I told you the minimum population size in that group is five foot, does that rule out there being a person that's four feet tall in there? Mm-hmm. It would the minimum. Yeah, exactly. Because if the minimum size is four foot, you wouldn't see, I mean, five foot, you wouldn't see someone's four foot. So mm-hmm. he took what was the average and claimed that it was the minimum. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I see that. And so this is something that that people had told him about in the past. <laughs> um, he'd acknowledged it, but then he just kind of went on to repeat this. So this is something that's just not true. I mean, this is something that most biologists know is not true. I mean, one of the big puzzles is how is it that, um, you know, he was able to go out so many times claiming something that was just blatantly not true. <laughs> 
and very few people were willing to uh, to raise raise the matter with him. I mean, honestly, if uh, Richard Bugs had not raised the issue, you know, he might still be saying it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of why that was happening is just that um, most scientists aren't really keyed into these sorts of questions um, that are coming from theology. Uh, so, you know, the sorts of questions we come to science with from theology are really different than how most scientists are asking questions. We're not, we're not normally thinking about single couple bottlenecks. And so, um, you know, so when, and, you know, and I'd also say that most uh, people who aren't scientists might have had a harder time kind of picking out what the issues were. I mean, who knows? Or more easily dismissed. Uh, Vern Poitras was actually a theologian who identified the issue correctly and pointed it out, but he was kind of dismissed for, uh, I mean, he, was, he wasn't a scientist, but his criticism of Venema's work in 2014 was entirely valid. And for some reason, he was pretty much ignored. And, and you know, and that, that, that's unfortunate. I mean, so I don't, I don't really know entirely why that's the case. Those are some guesses. But in the end, like, you know, he was claiming that effective population size was like the minimum height within a room of people or the minimum population within a group. But in fact, it is not that. It is the average. And so it doesn't actually tell you what the minimum size is. Um, it just doesn't really tell you. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. So I think I lost you a little bit there, like in the, like the last 30 seconds. Um, can you just like rephrase that, Josh? So um, uh, what I, I, you're saying you're not, you weren't sure what I meant when I said I'm not sure exactly how he was able to do that for so long or the part about, I was just no, repeating the, I, what I said before. I, I was tracking, I was tracking with you then. I, ca I caught that part. Maybe I got a little bit lost, but yeah, I'm tracking with you. Yeah. So it, like to give another example, like, you know, we know that the, um, that the average stock price has risen, you know, on average, let's say around 5% per year, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean it never dipped and went it went down over your year, right? Because to say it's the average it's been five percent is different than saying that the minimum growth has been five percent every year. Yeah. And so we can take an average of a group, and that means that we actually know for a fact that there's values that are lower than that number, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, he was claiming instead that that measurement of the average was actually the minimum. Okay. The minimum possible. And like I said, I, this isn't rocket science. It's just really surprising that he was able to get away with that for so long. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, Josh. All right. So, so really what happens is because, I mean, it just turns out that the evidence that's presented in this book and that's been, I mean, it's still cited and quoted in different places, really just proves to be irrelevant to ruling out this model. You really look to have to look at other data. And um, we looked at really all sorts of data we could we could find. I mean, either you could get other effective population size uh, methods, but we can, you know, they, they fail for the same reason. But it does turn out that there are some ways to rule out a genetic bottleneck more recent than about half a million years ago by looking at lineage time. So the simplest way to understand this is by thinking about mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam. Those are two lineages. One is for our Y chromosomes. Another lineage is for mitochondria. And we can compute with pretty, you know, with pretty high confidence when uh, the, the most recent common ancestor of all mitochondria are, mitochondrial Eve. Mm -hmm. And where, and when the uh, most recent um, common ancestor for all Y chromosomes are. <clears throat> and and that and at those points, really, we can't really plausibly believe um, that that there was, uh, I mean, like I said, unless you're going to say that Adam and Eve didn't have normal biology, but if they had biology like ours, then, you know, there's good reason to think that if there's an Adam and Eve and a genetic bottleneck, then it was more ancient than the, those dates. And those dates come out uh, somewhere between 100 to 200,000 years ago. And so, um, and so that means that Adam would have to be more ancient than that. Um, that turns out to be also uh, within the range of the origin of Homo sapiens. 
so that doesn't really establish the claim that there was never done uh, there was you know that homo sapiens didn't begin with just two keeping in mind also that we know that homo sapiens actually interbreded with neanderthals too anyways so then what we really need to do is we have to look at the dna across the entire rest of the genome and do the same sort of analysis on it. and so we're able to do that and find out when uh the time to most uh recent hey Josh, you there? I can't hear you. sorry you can't hear me I, I can hear you now. Did did I lose? Did you lose me? Like what happened there? Because we're back now. I lost I you. Can't... You're gone still. Yeah, I was having issues with my internet, um, but I think we're good now. I turned my camera off for a sec, but I think we're good. So you can keep going. My bad. Yeah, yeah. So we can look at not just mitochondria and um, Y chromosome add, and we can look at other parts of the genome, and this is what we end up with. Oh, by the way. Here's some data to show you on the linkage equilibrium. You can see here it's showing you what the population size is in orange, what it's guessing it is, versus what it actually is in black. And in the orange, you can see it, it's not able to pick it up at all in a linkage equilibrium sort of um, uh, assessment where the actual bottleneck is. It just mm -hmm. isn't sensitive to that. All right, so if we go to the, where, where do I want to go to? Um, so this is some of the data that actually is directly from the discussion we had on this. Um, it's, it's like a public discussion we had. Um, and what we're looking at is what the time to most recent uh, four alleles is across the whole genome. So we looked at the entire genome, except for, I guess, you know, Y chromosome and mitochondria and asked, well, if we look at the whole genome, what does the data seem to indicate is like the most recent time that there could have been a bottleneck down to two? And the number we come up with is from this data looking across the whole human genome and the population variation is that actually there's a pretty good way to explain the vast majority of, of uh, uh, variation in the human population if it arises at least, uh, I mean, if Adam and Eve weren't any more recent or genetic bottleneck wasn't any more recent than um, about half a million years ago. Hmm. So this is data that um, that's that's like published now. It's out there. It's not, but it wasn't actually part of the um, of the um, of the data that or the evidence that was that was presented in that book. This is like new data that we actually did when we were trying to respond and trying to figure out, well, what does the evidence actually show? So what was really important about this, once again, is that it does look like, you know, there's evidence that rules out a single couple of bottle, genetic bottleneck going back about half a million years ago. But it's not the same evidence that has been typically pointed to. It's very different evidence um, that uh, that's called it's called lineage times. So the lineage okay. times across the genome aren't consistent with a single couple origin um, without any, you know, interbreeding at any point. <laughs> um, unless Adam and Eve were more ancient than um, than half a million years ago. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you have this data from lineage times, which is in the, gen the genome. And from lineage times, you can figure out that like, there can't be just because of like, whatever's going on that like, there can't be like a single couple that are like the descendants of everyone in like a bottleneck um, for at least 495,000 years. Yeah, that's right. And um, now, I mean, as we get more data, so, I mean, I, I include some links to some other preprints that are out there um, where people have actually computed, or we actually computed this using several different methods. I mean, there's going to be a little bit of variation, but it's around, it's around half a million years ago, no matter how you compute it. And that's pretty robust, even using very different data sets. Um, so, um, so there is evidence, there is good genetic evidence um, that, uh, that unless Adam and Eve have very different, you know, biology than we do, <laughs> mm -hmm. if they're, their lineage and interbreed with others, they'd have to be more ancient than a half a million years ago. So that's what William Lane Craig does. Um, but relaxing those two assumptions is where reasons to believe goes. So they think Adam Eve is more recent than that. Um, but, but at the same token, they would say that they didn't have the same biology as us. And also their lineage interbred with Neanderthals. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So like, again, you're looking at like different people. So like Craig is still thinking about like 
does Craig think that like there was a bottleneck and that's why he's pushing Adam and Eve like partially back um, beyond this, like this almost like half a million years. Um, is that what's going on with Craig? Well, so what's pushing it back for him, it really has nothing to do with genetics. So what's pushing it back to, to 700,000 years for him is when he looks at the fossil record, um, he sees evidence that there was fully human minds about uh, 700,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. He often points to um, a javelin that was found that really seems to show, I mean, it, it was very difficult to make without forethought is how he assesses it. Yeah. And in careful, you know, careful thought to balance it correctly, to have a, a great deal of forethought and design and how it was made. And so he looks at that and says, well, this is a fully human mind. This isn't something that an animal could ever do. So therefore, Adam and Eve were that ancient. And that's that's really why he puts them that that ancient. Now, there's other lines of evidence he's going to as well from genetics about the difference between Neanderthals and humans and such. And if it was really enough to be um between like a human and an animal or not, but he doesn't really see that. He sees like really the first human mind is arising around 700,000 years ago. So that's why he puts Adam and Eve there. Now, once again, I disagree with the theology behind that. But from a scientific point of view, what he did there is entirely, you know, consistent with the evidence. There's nothing that um, is scientifically a problem with what he what he's suggesting there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can disagree that theologically, and, and you know there are theological disagreements, but we shouldn't misrepresent or hide or cloak our theological disagreements with false scientific arguments. And so, I think his position is fine scientifically, though I think there's it's it's vulnerable for theological reasons, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think it's necessary to do that, or it makes a lot of sense to do that. But having uh, thought about it that way and coming to that time, then he doesn't actually have any evidence against the idea of a bottleneck. And he says, well, maybe there was a bottleneck. But he's also not committed to a bottleneck. And so he says, well, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, maybe there was interbreeding or not. That's not really what he's committed to. He just said the very first human mind really begins with Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, so it's really like a two-part thing going on here to kind of reiterate. One is, you know, genetic model decks are not a good model for how most people are thinking about Adam and Eve. Maybe they're wrong and maybe there's evidence against those positions, but it's, but evidence against a bottleneck is not really evidence against these points of view. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, a lot of the evidence that has been really marshaled against a genetic bottleneck is not really strong evidence against it anyways. <laughs> Um, there is evidence, but it doesn't go um, back to, uh, I mean, it doesn't go back millions and millions of years, as some people claim. It only goes back maybe about half a million years. Yeah. And some people plausibly think that um, that's when humans begin. It's sometime more ancient than that. So we don't really know uh, enough from science to be able to make some of the strong claims that are made. Okay, so like you're, when you're looking at this, Josh, and thinking at it from like a scientific perspective, again, what you're trying to like one of the points you're trying to bring here is that like really like we can rule out like this kind of like single couple bottleneck um, for within like the most recent like 495,000 years. Like that seems like given like what we know, like very plausible. But beyond that, like it's just kind of like hard to know. Like we just don't really know at this point and you can't say, oh, it's impossible or oh, it definitely happened. And we're just kind of in the dark almost yeah, the science just i mean the evidence doesn't tell us we can we can guess but but the science doesn't tell us and so you know i think that we can be open-minded about what different people think about that and we shouldn't present evidence there that we don't actually have i mean that being said uh even the idea of a genetic bottleneck itself doesn't really map to how people are thinking about this anyway so it may not even be the best way to be thinking about this scientifically mm-hmm how do you think, Josh, like I'm thinking about people that um, may disagree with you um, on like a theological perspective here that like you like you mentioned, like reasons to believe um, and maybe like or like a young earth creationist, like different groups that like want to say that like Adam and Eve are like the descendants of like every human being. Um, how are they going to kind of respond like in light of like this evidence uh, you hinted like to like interbreeding is something I know you mentioned like some maybe like young earth creationists are saying like uh, potentially like in each egg of Eve, um, there was a different like genome. Like, what are people gonna like? What would people like scientifically minded Christians think like in light of what we're what we were talking about with like bottlenecks? Well, I think for so theologically, I see no reason to look for uh, <clears throat> for a personally 
I see no reason to look for genetic bottleneck. I mean, I've written a whole book explaining why I think that mm-hmm. Adam and his lineage were interbreeding with others and they were fully human. And I, I don't see any reason to think that Adam and Eve were the first in the image of God. We can kind of go into all that stuff if you want to. But that's not where I'm coming from. A lot of what's in this article has been really helpful to people like Bill Craig and Reasons to Believe because it shows that even though I disagree with them theologically, there isn't a scientific problem with what they're proposing. Mm-hmm. So we can have our theological disagreements, and we do. But the key thing that this article really shows is that, you know, the model that Reasons to Believe is putting forward is not actually in conflict with the evidence on human origins. I mean, we can disagree with them for a lot of reasons. I mean, I disagree with a lot of the arguments they make against evolution. I don't think that they make a strong case uh, for the separate creation of every single species and all that. that that's fine. Um, those disagreements can still be there on the scientific level. I already kind of explained what the theological disagreements are. <clears throat> but they've also proposed a model about Adam and Eve that isn't in conflict with the evidence. Mm-hmm. And we should be honest about that. And so that model should really stand or fall based on uh, what uh, what the theological argument you know leads to, what we think scripture teaches, and what we think we should be committed to uh, theologically. Likewise with um, with William Lane Craig, you know, there's I think it's entirely fair game to argue with him on the theological points that he makes, but it wouldn't be fair to make scientific arguments against this position where the where it's not really grounded in good data. So I think the way how Christians uh, kind of in Bill Craig and, you know, reasonably camp has responded. I mean, they've responded really well. They really seen this as helpful to their point of view, because often they've had an unfair fight where they're having to deal with strong claims that there's evidence and science against their position when that's not really true. Hmm. Okay. That's helpful, Josh. Thank you. What about like, what is like the what about the intelligent design community? Like thinking about like the Discovery Institute and whatnot. Like what do they like? I don't know if you've had people interact with you based off this article in that community, but like what do they kind of think about what you're doing here? Well, so I think this is a hard topic for them because this is something they invested a lot of money into, and we're actually working on pretty hard. And then it got kind of solved essentially here, and they were part of the conversation for sure in that regard. But. Um, it's not really something that they were able to take credit for as much as they might want. And so uh, they, I think they're kind of still struggling through it somewhat in some ways. So there's, there's a couple of recent articles that came out where they were kind of explaining this and they are only really explaining part of the data. Um, they're not really engaging all the data. Um, and it's not because the positions they're proposing are implausible. I think it's because uh, they're, they're, they, uh, I, I think they're trying to figure out how to uh, how to situate the work that they did and funded as being really critical in this process. And so, like the work on lineage times ended up being really what saw, uh, you know, you know, ended the argument about this. But it wasn't actually work that they did. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so they're they're trying to show how their argument was was somehow important. Um, where that, where, I mean, I think what they did that was valuable was really raising a lot of the right questions, but they didn't actually do the scientific work that settled the question, I think. And and I think that's, what's making it a little bit complicated for them. Hmm. Okay. That's helpful. Um, so we like lineage times is kind of like how we're looking at this and like explaining like how we can kind of like figure out this bottleneck problem of like ruling out like a bottleneck happened in the past, like 495,000 years. Can you maybe like go into like a little bit more detail to help like people understand, like what is like a lineage time inference? Like, how is that going to help us understand like um, why we can well? Yeah, so I'm going to just click on this link here, where, which is where it's from. What's going to take us to a place where there's a lot more data? Oh, actually, you know, I'm going to go to. Let me see here. I'm going to share a different tab here. Let me um, okay. find out. Yeah, I'm going to go right here and then go to. Okay, there we go. So let me just share something else here. Okay.
All right, so this is a preprint that we published that, that explains a lot more what's going on here. So do you see this right here? Yep, I see the paper. So let me zoom in a little bit to make it a bit easier to see. All right. So you can see here several genomes li uh, lined out in figure B right here. Several genomes lined out. And you'll see that there's trees right here. These trees are um, a way to kind of organize the data. It, you know, you, we compute it from the data, it has to do with all the genetic mutations. And it gives us a way to say, well, this is the way that actually, that's the inferred history of the genomes um, that we've kind of lined up here. And some of them are more similar to one another. So they'll be, they'll be kind of here with, with closer ancestors. And some of them are are a lot more different. They'll be there more with more ancient ancestors. And based on the you know molecular clock, we can get good estimates of how long it takes um, for different uh, different parts of the gene. I mean, well, different sections of the genome to basically um, to be coalesced or kind of form and connect up with other ones. Does that make sense? Um, I somewhat. I mean, part of it's I just don't think like a lot of this is stuff I haven't really heard of. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of compressing probably like about <laughs> uh, a whole course of, uh, of phylogenetics into a very short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. So again, props to you for being willing and able to do this, Josh. Um, so I don't know, just try the best you can to explain it. And I mean, it is what it is. I knew what I was getting into somewhat when I, when I invited you on. I think it's valuable. Yeah, so to just break it down in a simple way, what we were able to do is compute for every single part of the genome. So every single, so a genome is, you know, like the A's, G's, and C's, and T's, and the long string of letters. And we know how quickly that changes over time. And we can ask, you know, well, if our starting point is just for, uh, you know, four uh, different genomes, like two from Adam and Eve, and two, I'm sorry, two from Adam and two from Eve, um, is there enough time, uh, you know, I mean, or how, I mean, how far do you have to go? How much time do you need to derive from four individuals all the diversity we see today? Does that make okay. sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And you can see it in these trees. So you, uh, these trees are here. And uh, as you go this direction, it's going farther back in time, all right? Um, and if, if you're looking at, at here how many different lineages there are at a particular time you know that um if you're like right here at this time you need to have you know a particular number of lineages to be able to explain the amount of diversity we see as a minimum so it's a minimum population estimate that's the key thing here okay. um, unlike some of the things that uh were being discussed before this is not an estimate of the average it's actually an estimate of the minimum mm -hmm. Like all the math is shown there. There's also a lot of simulations where we're able to show that it's actually pretty good at picking out what, what the minimum population size is. And also that uh, linkage uh, disequilibrium doesn't actually tell you what the minimum is. Yeah. Mm. And so that even if there is a short, brief bottleneck, it just is entirely invisible to a lot of other methods. But this approach would still be able to tell you that uh, we'd be able to rule out some bottlenecks. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. So that's what we're able to show. We're able to show that um, that uh, well, I mean that that's that's how the the approach works. I mean, it's a little more complicated by that, but if you uh, if you have a basis in biology and read those papers carefully, it'll make sense. And also, a lot of this stuff is I mean, actually all of this stuff is using publicly available data and software. So if you know how to program a little bit, you can even go do it yourself. It's it's not it's not difficult to do in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you look at that data, I mean, that, that's just what our best estimates are from science of, you know, when Adam and Eve could have been or like what the minimum population size is for, uh, you know, for humans, given, given the genetic data that we see. Okay. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say, Josh, about like the science of like genetic bottlenecks? I want to talk a little bit about like the theology before we wrap up, but anything about like the science that you think would be relevant for people like listening to this? Yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate the key points is that genetic bottlenecks are often thought to be a strong argument against Adam and Eve, but there's really two problems with that. The first is that it's not really a good model for how to think about Adam and Eve in the first place. There's, mm. I, I don't know, while it might be the preferred model of many creationists, it's certainly not what they're committed to. Um, 
that's pretty clear right now. So, you know, in that sense, you shouldn't really care about genetic bottlenecks. But if you do, and, you know, in science, we care about esoteric questions. So let's go look at it anyways. You know, there is evidence. Um, and, it's you know, the strongest evidence is lineage times. And it pushes back an, a genetic bottleneck Adam and Eve uh, to about half a million years ago or so in the past. And so, I mean, the evidence there is pretty strong if that's what you care about. Though, like I said, I don't actually think most creationists are committed to that view. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful, Josh. Thanks. So how do you think like, like in your own like views, um, obviously like you wrote like genealogical Adam and Eve, I forget what year that was published, but it's about like five years, right? Since it's been published or am I, am I overestimating? Wow. Time has slide. I guess, I guess, uh, I guess it's been about four years now, but yeah, time does slide, wasn't it? I feel like that was, I remember reading that book in my deck in like high school, not high school, but college. And I'm like, wow, that feels like so long ago. Um, <laughs> but like 2019, but yeah. Um, how is like, like, does it has like this article on bottlenecks and like your thought in general, as it's like, you've kind of worked through these issues. Have you like, has it changed or like influenced like your theology at all and thinking about like Adam and Eve and like creation and like all these important topics? Well, I think, you know, my premise from the beginning has been that I don't think science really addresses these theological questions the way people think. And I don't think there's really nearly as much conflict, conflict as people say. And I think that's been really validated mm -hmm. to be true. So in that sense, I just don't know if the science has really affected my theology very much. At the same token, I've learned a lot about theology since then, uh, just from being in conversations with people across the country who are you know, trained in these areas who know a lot more about it than I do. And so I've really learned a lot more about theology. And so um, that, that has um, helped me understand more why it is that people um, you know, have the particular views they do why it is that certain uh certain people really care about adam and eve and, and the christian faith and why some people don't and i've also been learning about other faiths too like islam and why they care about it at times um and and, and that does shape uh you know because i think some of those arguments are better than others so it does end up actually shaping what i think is important mm -hmm. okay yeah that's helpful josh here's something i'm thinking about like i think some people um, and one of the things that I think you did a great job is like you reiterated like your two like main like things with bottlenecks, like one being the idea that like um, genetic bottlenecks aren't necessarily like even that all important. If you want to say like there is an Adam and Eve um, because of things like interbreeding or things like this, that like you just don't necessarily need like a full on like genetic bottleneck. Um, and then two saying like, hey, we can only know to about like 500,000 like years ago um, that there was one. What would you say to someone that like, maybe their thought process is very influenced by this idea, like that there, that there had to be a bottleneck. Um, like, do you reiterate those two points again? Like, what do you think? Well, I would really ask them to, you know, you know, ask them like, are they really saying that they're certain that, you know, angels never interbred with Adam and Eve's lineage or that, that there wasn't, um, or, you know, like, well, do they really think that you know, Adam and Eve was restricted to homo sapiens and that homo sapiens and Neanderthals never interbred. They're completely convinced of that. Or, would they just modify it? I think, um, I mean, I would just ask them lots of questions. Like, how do they know that God didn't create other people outside the garden? And like, what are they really committed to? And um, and I just found that the vast majority of cases, even if they end up disagreeing with me theologically and they don't like the direction I've gone and, and you know, the model I proposed in the genealogical Adam and Eve, that they're not actually committed um, in a rigid way to... Uh, to saying that Adam, there was no interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others. So I, um, I mean, there might be some people out there that that think differently, um, but you know, I, I really love to, uh, I really love to see how that holds up when being asked directly about that. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. Um, anything else you want to say, Josh, with regards to like the theology side of like thinking about like like bottlenecks and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think. A lot of these are esoteric from a scientific point of view. I mean, there isn't a ton of papers out there on these topics, but um, but in the end, I mean, we can be uh, we can be you know we we can take these. I mean, we should take these questions seriously as scientists because there you know there is interesting questions that come out of theology. There's different concerns and values, and there's no uh, there's no downside and a lot of upside to really engaging. Um, you know with rigorous and honest science to answer those questions. So I, mean, I think we should do that. Okay, that's helpful. Here's like one more thing I'm thinking about, Josh, like 
in these past like four years, like with the genealogical Adam even like since publication, you referenced like you've learned a lot more in like the theology side through like conversations and whatnot. Um, who like like who and like what conversations or like what books, like what's been shaping you like theologically as you think through these issues since um that book came out? Well, it's been a lot of conversations with individuals. I think that um one person has been really helpful is Ken Keithley, who's a Southern, who's in the Southern Baptist Convention at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Also, Andrew Locke, um, who is um, out in uh, Hong Kong right now, and then also um, William Lane Craig. These are all been people that have been really good to talk to. And more recently, also Shoaib Malik, I mean Ahmed Malik, uh, who is a Muslim scholar, who kind of has been. I mean, it was really eye-opening reading his book on on human origins to understand what actually are the Islamic concerns on this too. Mm. Um, there, there's a lot more I could say. I mean, obviously, John Garvey's work has been really helpful. And, and um, I think you guys interviewed him. Uh, well, I think one of your friends did <laughs> recently at Sentinel Apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, there, there, it's just been a really large conversation. It's, I mean, Michael Heiser, um, you know, it's, it's sad to see him pass away this last year, but <clears throat> his work has been really helpful and really would have honestly pretty dramatically changed how I wrote parts of my book if I was to do it again. If I know his work at the time, um, there, there's there's a lot of really good stuff out there um, that I'm just you know I'm just you know because I'm a scientist I wasn't as exposed to that you know since then I've learned about. It really is a fascinating time in like the human like origins debate. Like I think about like all the different like views and the people that are doing like so much work um, in this debate. Like there was a time that like, I think probably a lot of people thought it was like creationists versus like evolutionists or like there was some, some or like creationist ID and like evolutionists. Um, or like, I was like, Oh, there's like the creationists, there's the old earth creationists, there's the ID and the evolutionists. And, like that's kind of it. But there really are like so many different like views out there and like ways of understanding these things like scientifically, like and theologically. And that I was just reminded of that as I was t- thinking through all these people you referenced, I'm like, they all like may have like some broad things they agree on, but there's a lot of like differences in these views um, and there's a lot of like options here to wrestle through. And there are important differences, right? So I think that, um, I, I think that the old, uh, classification is really kind of on its last legs. I mean, I, I don't actually think, uh, you know, that model is working so well, just saying there's young earth creationists, old earth creationists, theistic evolutionists and ID people. I mean, that's too simplistic and it's not really capturing the salient issues. Mm-hmm. For sure. Anymore. I mean, it, I think it was if you go back maybe 20 years ago or even maybe 10 years ago, it was probably it was probably a good way to explain it. But um, I think certainly since my book has come out and people have responded and reacted to it and adjusted, I don't I don't really think that that classification really works anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Josh, it's been so great having you. I really appreciate your time. Any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we like wrap up here? No problem. Thanks for your interest in kind of caring about these esoteric things. I mean, I think the article was, I mean, the article was written so anyone can read it. If you have questions or anyone listening has questions about it, I'm happy to answer. Hopefully it it makes sense when you get a chance to read it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate you like breaking it down because it's like science is not like my forte. So like, I really appreciate you. Like, I think I have a lot more like clarity on like what's going on here in the article and whatnot. So yeah, I'm super grateful for your time, Josh. Um, I'll leave a link down below to the article. I'll leave a link down below to peaceful science. Um, so people can like follow and connect with you, Josh. Um, one last thing, like, I mean, you haven't like, I believe you haven't written any books since like this genealogical Adam Eve came out. Like, do you have any like projects you're working on or things that are going on um, that people could expect from you in the future? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So um, I've been uh, really thinking about writing a book on uh, race and genetics and maybe after that on AI, but, you know, time has been really tight and short. Cause, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I have a lot of work to do as a professor too. So um, I'm still kind of a little bit in catch up mode. I just graduated a, a, a student who just uh, defended her, successfully descended her dissertation today. Mm-hmm. Um there's a couple of things going on, but my hope is by the end of the summer, I'll have enough stuff kind of uh, knocked away that I'll be able to really dive in deep into actually writing uh, this book on race. Hmm. But we'll that'd see. That'd be really cool. That'd be really cool. And if that happens, I'd love to have you on to talk about that. Cause that'd be definitely an interesting topic just with everything going on in the world. Well, um, thanks. But I Josh, appreciate it. I appreciate it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. I always appreciate you, um, your curiosity, um, your willingness to like, just stand up for like what you believe in. Um, but also like to leave the door open to like multiple views. So I always enjoy having you on. It's always a pleasure. Um, I'll leave links again below for people who might want to like follow you, connect with you and things like that. Um, and if you like it here in apologetics and you like what we do, uh, first I'd encourage you just to subscribe, like, leave a like all that fun stuff. Um, that'd be super value valuable and if you value what we do please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com you can support for as little as a dollar a month and that would be huge but josh that's it thank you so much for coming on today i really appreciate your time all right thanks a lot man talk to you later talk to you later have a good one everyone and god bless